G'day, g'day guys. Now before we dive into today's show, I want to let you know that some of you may be aware that over the past eight years, I have built a substantial multifamily real estate portfolio here in the US worth over half a billion dollars. And in that time, my passive investors have received fantastic double digit returns. And now you too can invest directly into my deals for as little as $50,000. So if you're an interested investor, head over to reedgoosens.com to find out more. That's reedgoosens.com. Now back into the show. As soon as you start trying to become aware of the emotions of the other person and navigating their emotions, it actually has a tremendous leveling effect on you. It kicks your brain into a different sort of analysis. And it pulls you out of the negative survival thinking and puts you much more into where you're receiving and paying attention and analyzing in a much smarter way. And the real subtle benefits of tactical empathy is it has a great impact on the other side. And it actually has a better impact on the user than the receiver. And it works really good on the receiver. And a lot of people don't really understand you, you engage in empathy because you do want to have a better relationship, but it makes you a better thinker in the moment. Welcome to Investing in the US, a podcast for real estate investors, business owners, and aspiring entrepreneurs looking to break into the US market. Join Reid as he interviews go-getters, risk-takers, and the best in the business about their journey towards financial freedom and the sheer joy of creating something from nothing. G'day, g'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the US podcast from Los Angeles. I'm your host, Reid Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, I'm glad that you've all tuned in to learn from my incredible guests, and each and every one of them are the cream of the crop here in the United States when it comes to real estate investing, business investing, and entrepreneurship. Each show, I try and tease out their incredible stories of how they have successfully created their businesses here in the US, how they've created financial freedom massive amounts of cash flow and ultimately create extraordinary lives for themselves and their families. Life by design, as I like to say. Hopefully, these guests will inspire all of my cracking listeners, which are you guys, to get off the couch and go and take massive amounts of action. If these guys can do it, so can you. Now, as you know, I'm all about sharing the knowledge with my loyal listeners, which is you guys, and there's absolutely no BS on this show, just straight into the nuts and bolts. Now, if you do like this show, the easiest way to give back is to give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching at Reed Goosens. You can find the show wherever you podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Play, but you can also find these episodes up on my YouTube channel. So head over to reedgoosens.com, click on the video link, and it will take you to the video recordings of these podcasts where you can see my ugly mug, but the beautiful faces of my guests each and every week. All right, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today, 
Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with former international kidnapping negotiator for the FBI and best-selling author, Chris Voss. Now, Chris spent 24 years with the FBI where he trained in the art of negotiation. Now, he was not only trained by the FBI, but he was also trained by Scotland Yard and the Harvard Law School. Chris used many years of his experience in international crises and high-stakes negotiations to develop a very unique program that applies globally proven techniques to the business world. And in 2016, Chris published the award winning book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as If Your Life Depended on It. To say that I'm really pumped and excited to have him on the show today is a massive understatement. I'm a huge fan of the book. So without further ado, let's get him out here. G'day, Chris. Welcome to the show. How are you doing today, mate? Hey, man. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Where are you dialing in from, by the way? I didn't even ask. I'm in Vegas. You're in Vegas. Okay. Yeah, just down the, I live just in down Vegas. The- down the road from uh, from from sunny California, so uh, so not, not nice to nice to see you. Good morning to you out there, everyone. But um, with that being said, I like to ask all my guests when they come on the show, rewind the clock and tell me how you made your first ever dollar as a kid. Yeah, you know that's a great question. It's one of two things because I went to work for my father at a very early age. He was a uh, uh, independent uh, sole proprietor, entrepreneur guy. Had his own business, uh, shell oil jobber, as you will, middleman between the oil company and the end users. And he put, you know, he started putting his kids to work for him really early. I also, for whatever reason, I had an, I've always had an entrepreneurial streak in me. And I remember selling, you know, seeds as a kid and selling Christmas cards. And I can't remember which I did first. So it was either, (laughs) either working for the old man, probably working for the old man. Cause you know, he figured you had to earn your room and board. I hear a bit of an accent you're not originally from Vegas, right? No, I'm not. I, I grew up a lot of different places. I mean, I'm originally a small town boy from Iowa. Um, okay. I spent I spent a lot of time in New York City, and mm-hmm. you know, my formative adult years, if you will, from uh, late twenties to uh, early forties. And so, I get a bit, you know, I I, I gathered a bit of a New York accent yep. layered on top of my Iowa <laughs> Midwestern accent. Walk us through for those people who don't know your background your journey into the FBI and into high stakes negotiation? Because if people haven't read the book, I've got it here. Definitely get your hands on it. Never split the difference. The negotiating is if your life depended on it. I've got a personal story around this, which we'll get into in a little bit. But I really want to hear the background of how you got into, it's not just the everyday person who comes through university and says, I'm going to go out and be an FBI high stakes negotiator. So how did that come about? Yeah, well, I was a cop in Kansas City, police officer, Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, three years there, great town, good police department. And um, while I was still there, you know, you, you're young and full of adrenaline and you want to be exciting and be a crime fighter as a cop. You know, you run around very, very, very adrenaline based. Um, they rotated out a bunch of uh, uh, detectives out of the detective bureau back into the into the uh, street and into uniform. Detectives had, a, had filed a lawsuit against the police department saying, you know, we've been being a detective is a promotion and therefore we should, you know, we should get uh, the money. And one of the reasons it's a promotion is none of us ever go back out into the street. Mm. So the police department said, Oh, well, we'll fix that. <laughs> and we'll, we'll put you guys back out on the street in uniform. And so then I was lucky enough to end up uh, with some guys who really understood communication. And I saw guys, uh, one in particular, I can remember, using his tone of voice to make a huge difference and calm people down. And I didn't really think about it at the time, but it just blew me away, the power of the voice. So then I end up, uh, my father encourages me to look at federal law enforcement. Um, the Secret Service was not hiring. The FBI was. 
I didn't know one from the other, you know, the, the federal alphabet soup, you know, DEA, ATF, all that <laughs> stuff. I didn't know that. FBI, um, FBI was hiring and I caught on with them and ended up uh, ultimately at the terrorist task force in New York City. I had been on the SWAT team in Pittsburgh and was in the process of trying out for the Bureau's tier one anti-terrorist SWAT team, the hostage rescue team, when I re-injured my knee. And I wanted, I like crisis response as an additional duty. Um, you can have additional duties when you're a street agent uh, FBI, uh, in the FBI, you know, uh, SWAT, evidence response, bomb techs, negotiator, undercover. And I thought uh, I was very attracted to the hostage negotiators. So, and I didn't figure it'd be that hard. You know, I remember thinking to myself, you know, I talk to people every day, how hard could it be? And it uh, was initially rejected told to, uh, in order to get past the barriers of being unqualified, to volunteer on a suicide hotline, which I did. And, you know, that's emotional intelligence. Uh, They didn't have the phrase, you know, I'm talking about the last century. Emotional intelligence hadn't been coined as a phrase yet, but that's what it is on the hotline. And I was blown away. Like, this is, is, you can affect people's behavior, take them from ranting and raving and out of control emotionally to a point where they can make good decisions in 20 minutes or less. It was phenomenal. So I learned that, became a hostage negotiator, just loved it. Loved to be able to change outcomes just with words or even just your tone of voice. And since I loved it so much, you know, uh, you excel, uh, you study. I'm not particularly smart, but I do work really hard. You know, I think of myself as a slow learner who will not give up (laughs) and ended up uh, the people that wanted self-initiated self-starters who listened and took instruction. Uh, then I ended up running our international kidnap response for a number of years. That's that's an incredible story. And I guess coming from the police force, you would you'd think it's very macho type of, yeah. you know, you know, saying the word emotional intelligence, you might be looked down on, you know, as you mentioned, it, it wasn't, it wouldn't have even been in the vocabulary back in the day. So well, how- And still, that's still a problem to this day. I mean, um, in trying to help law enforcement solve their interactions with police and community, and I've waded back into it a little bit, you know, they're still repeating the same phrases that they did when I got trained 40 years ago, which is astonishing. Mm. You know, mm. I think police problems are really more um, training problems, not race problems. Right. No, I completely agree with that. Before we get into the book, what stands out as the number one high stakes negotiation you've ever been involved in? Just give you know, a bit of a you know overview for the, for the, for the listeners because it's it's it, it sort of it's nearly like a good novel, right? You know, when you hear about it's just someone's actually in it, you're talking about you know talking to this whoever it might be and backing them off the ledge, so to speak. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, I was fortunate to have some some pretty significant ones through my career. I mean, I had a bank robbery with hostages at the Chase Bank. Those are rare events. This year, there won't be a bank robbery with hostages where the police negotiate with the bad guys in, in the whole of the U.S. Bad mm-hmm. guys are always going for the cops. Show up. They know they're coming. So uh, to have, you know, something out of the movies, that's that's a rare event. That was, that was great. That was uh, I was privileged to be involved in it. We got everybody out safely. You know, I've I've worked kidnapping cases against Al Qaeda hmm. uh, or offshoots of Al Qaeda in the Philippines and in 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 the Middle East. Um, we were up against Hamas once. A wow. Fox News reporter got got grabbed, and that was a great case. It went really fast, especially since it, when it started Steve Santani, 
everybody was convinced that uh, Santani and his cameraman uh, had been murdered and disappeared in the Gaza Strip. I mean, the Gaza Strip's a fishbowl. It's real hard to disappear entirely. And nobody's sources, press sources, law enforcement sources, intel, you know, he just they just vanished. And um, they, and the only way you vanish is if you're dead and buried under under a house someplace. And they were alive and we got those guys out. That was a great case. So, you know, I had to, I was, uh, there are a bunch of them. It's hard to say which yeah, one was I could, I, the I, I most significant. I, I could imagine. I'm sure there's going to be a memoir at some stage. It has to be, you know, just just, just re, reliving those incredible days because it would it would give, I, I'm sure as a person who, like yourself, you, you're self-driven and you said you, you know, you like to, to you, you're a self-learner. It must have a massive amount of satisfaction when you when you win, you know, when you were able to get through to the other side and get people out safely, right? Yeah, have to be. Yeah, no, it'd be no like kidding. a drug, right? Yeah, well, without question, it is. <laughs> you know, I mean, my buddy Stephen Kotler, he talks about um, flow all the time. Uh, by the way, his books on it are phenomenal, and flow's a drug. I mean, it's you on you. I mean, the neurochemicals that you can generate through passion and excitement and accomplishment. You know, the satisfaction of doing something that you feel privileged to do. I mean, those are great highs. Mm. Those are those are great highs. You know, that's mm. why these guys that get in the X Games guys, that's the, the, their own neurochemicals, the only drug they need. How much stuff are you doing today in and around keeping self-intelligence, you know, emotional intelligence, self-awareness, that sort of stuff? Are you, are you still doing a lot of that in, in your, your uh, post-writing the book? Yeah, constant. Absolutely constant. I mean, you know, we coach and we train people in negotiation. And we basically have essentially three levels. And at at our top level, these guys that we coach in that group are getting the stuff that we're just figuring out, that that we're experimenting with, that ourselves that we're putting into application. And there's always something new. I'm sort of amazed that we come up with new stuff because there's new neuroscience revelations you know, I, I was on a panel with Robert Cialdini uh, a couple of weeks ago, um, the psychology of influence. And uh, Cialdini threw something out that just like, wow, all right, wow, awesome. That I'd never thought of it like that. It was enlightening and we could put that right into our negotiation approach. So, yeah, we're constantly learning and and there's always something new new to add to the Black Swan method. Yeah, no, and I love that. And as we now dive into the book, what, what what was the impetus to go in after 24 years with the bureau, after all this experience? Did someone come tap on your shoulder and say, hey, "Chris, you've got you've got a story to tell, and you need to put it into a book like that"? Not not everyone is self aware, is that, my friend, to go and write it and share it with the rest of the world. Uh, it was a process. I mean, I knew that my time in the, uh, the Bureau of the Chapter was coming to a close. Um, I had, I had, I had originally, when I was on the New York Terrorist Task Force, I'm trying to make up my mind, stay in New York or become a full-time hostage negotiator. And there became a guy in upper management in New York that didn't care for me. I was far too independent. Um, didn't like Mavericks at all. And the guy made it clear to me, uh, God bless him for being candid and honest with me, you know, that I was dead in the water as long as he was in charge. Mm. I went to him and asked him about it. I wanted to get promoted. And he was uh, he was very candid with me. And I'm grateful for that to this day. So I thought, all right, so my time here in New York's up. It's uh, I'll, I'll go. I'll go be a hostage here. Sure. I went down there, went on an incredible run. And upper management changed at uh, the same time. 
and I thought, well, look, last time upper management changed where I was not uh, their cup of tea, and that's management's prerogative. Then I moved on and things got better. And so I thought, this is another sign from the universe. You know, it's time to move on. So I leave and perfect timing. I teach in a couple of business schools, Georgetown, Harvard. And then I, people are saying, look, you got to write a book. I mean, this stuff is effective. Your, your students are, are cutting phenomenal deals. I mean, I get students from Wall Street to you, you name it. Anybody working on an MBA, that's the entire um, rainbow, if you will, of, of jobs. And we were helping those students make phenomenal deals. And I actually held off on writing a book for a couple of years, wanted to make sure that we had a full system, if you will, you know, a full emotional intelligence skills and a full set of strategies for applying those skills. I had been encouraged to write a book. You know, I left in 2007. I mean, it was seven, eight years before we got the book out. Mm. But my son and I, uh, Brandon, Brandon Voss, my son, brilliant negotiator, we'd been working on it in the business schools and at teaching. And we pulled it together and we, we, we got Tall Raws involved, genius writer. Tall's a genius writer for business. And he made the book what it was. It's a, it's a fun read and not very many instructional books are fun reads. Right. And we put the book out and, and then worked really hard on promoting it. And here we are. Here we are. Well, I want to say, guys, if you're watching this on YouTube, definitely get your hands on the book. Never split the difference. Negotiating is if your life depends on it. So fun, not even a fun fact. I was negotiating uh, a painful business partner e exit two years ago, and I was reading this thing, and I threw it across the room because I wasn't doing any of the bloody things in it. Because <laughs> <laughs> and I was getting too emotional because it was my baby that I had, you know, that I had that I put together and it was coming to an end, right? It was my, it was me and my wow. business partner. It was just, it was just, it was over. And, and I didn't think I was getting the, 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 the rub, the green. I had, I was you know forced to leave and I want to get, won't get into the, the messy details, but it was a good book at the time to really sort of center yourself to say, try and get emotion out of it. And I think, you know, my biggest takeaway from all this negotiating is trying to really set your, your one, your ego and two, your emotions at the door. If you can, if you can do those two things, I think you're halfway in the battle. I'm not the expert you are, but I wanted just to tell you a little bit of my, my experience in a personal situation at the time I was reading the book. We have, I've got the three lessons that I want to get into, but would you agree that ego and emotion are, are sort of we're wired that way and thus negotiations can go a certain way just by those two things not being, you know, uh, uncapped. Yeah. Well, uh, human, human beings are wired to react like that. Um, you know, it's part of survival instinct where survival instinct is heavily negative, um, heavily uh, reactive to negative stimulus. You know, there are interesting questions as to why that is. And effectively the wiring that we've inherited from the, from the caveman I mean, a negative experience could kill you. Uh, and so we're wired to overreact to negativity because our survival depends on, it. you know, positive experience. You don't have to necessarily remember that because it's not going to kill you in the moment. Mm. And so we're wired to overreact to anything negative because it was a matter of survival. That's how our default wiring mechanism and survival wiring and success wiring are two different things. And it's, it's a constant struggle, especially when you're is personally identified as, you know, your own uh, endeavor. But it, however much more you uh, personally identify with whatever it is you're doing for a living, 
then your your survival mechanism is going to have a tendency to kick into gear. So yeah, that happens just because you're human. And it doesn't matter where you grew up, what your religion is, what your gender is, what your ethnicity is. It's in all human beings. And consequently, you know, the black swan method is designed to interact with that wiring. And mm -hmm. so crazy outgrowth of that is, as soon as you start trying to become aware of the emotions of the other person and navigating their emotions, it actually has a tremendous leveling effect on you. It kicks your brain into a different sort of analysis and it pulls you out of the negative survival thinking and puts you much more into where you're receiving and paying attention and analyzing in a much smarter way. And the real subtle benefits of tactical empathy is it has a great impact on the other side. And it actually has a better impact on the user than the receiver, and it works really good on the receiver. And a lot of people don't really understand you, you engage in empathy because you do want to have a better relationship, but it makes you a better thinker in the moment. Mm. Well, I want to get into now, let's start getting into the lessons, right? Unpacking the book a little bit. And, you know, so, you know, you guys can definitely get your hands on the book, read it. But the top three lessons that, you know, uh, you sort of talk about in the book, and I, I know Black Swan is based around is, is one is building trust through a thing right. called mirroring. The second thing is called is labeling the emotions of the other person. So that's back to your sort of tactical empathy. You know, once you sort of put your, your mind in how they think you think they're feeling, it helps you be a better negotiator, or at least takes away that that ego and that crises and that lizard brain moment. And then right. the third thing was take things slowly and and, and, and don't compromise. Um, one of the things that we all are geared to do, so you know, is we always think, oh, well, you're you're at one end, I'm at the other end. Let's just meet in the middle. We'll split it and we'll go our, our merry way. And because and, we're not, we're coming from two different points of view. And I think what your book really does well is breaking down that or how what not just talking about getting your mindset like the other person or how they're feeling but then going through talking about like the first thing the first step you know building trust through mirroring do you want to talk a little bit about that for the audience to to, to understand what does even mirroring mean when you're in a negotiating scene or scenario yeah and i'm gonna go back to something you said a moment ago that i think is important to underline you know the meeting in the middle is is lose lose negotiations you give, they give. That's lose-lose. And it's a recipe for killing the relationship. Short-term, making sure it's short-term. Because nobody wants to stay in interactions with somebody that it's lose-lose every time they, they talk to them. And that's why it never split the differences to get you out of it. So mirroring. Mirroring, the hostage negotiator's mirroring. The black swan method mirror. It's just repeating the last one to three words of what somebody said. It's a great mechanism for inquiring or demonstrating interest. It's ridiculously simple. And because of its simplicity, there's actually a certain elegance to it. I have found on a regular basis, the people that are most interested in mirroring, they love information. And they want to engage their brain as little as possible to trigger the information so that it's open for the reception of it. And mirroring doesn't require a lot of your brain, brain power to execute. Consequently, you're probably a better listener when you're mirroring. So you repeat the last one to three words of what they just said, word for word. It's not a body language mirror. 
it's not a tonality mirror. It's not, I think the term is isopraxism where you're physically mimicking the other person. It's not that at all. It's just repeating one to three-ish words. Can be as few as one word. Shouldn't be more than five. Usually it starts with the last thing that they just said because that's the easiest to remember. But when you get good at it, you can move it around. It's a great, it's a great tool for inquiry and expansion of getting the other person to add to their thoughts. It's a superior, much better replacement for what did you mean by that? Or please tell me more about that. Or can you go on about that? It's very, uh, it's a great way to surgically expand the conversation and even steer it in a very gentle fashion and get the other side to really go on and feel heard and listened to. And the more you feel heard, the more you are open to influence. For those of you who are interested in staying up to date with all the latest happenings in my business, or to learn more about passively investing directly into my multifamily value-add deals, then head over to reedgoosens.com and sign up for my monthly newsletter. By signing up, you'll automatically be notified about my new up-and-coming investment opportunities. You'll be able to stay up to date with all the latest real estate news here in the United States and much, much more. So head over to reedgoosens.com and sign up today. Now, back into the show. The other thing you talk about in lesson number one is the tone of voice. You know, in everyday life, even with my wife, I'm always like, honey, talk to me. We need to talk to each other with tone, tonality in, a, in an appropriate <laughs> manner. And we can sometimes get back to that sort of lizard brain. We can sometimes get, you know, this, the hairs on the back of our neck stands up and we, we, we may come across as terse, but we're not trying to be terse. We're just trying to be, we're frustrated in the moment. So tone of voice is so important in, in these negotiations, whether it's from with the wife or the spouse, all the way through to, you know, a real estate negotiation or a high stakes hostage negotiation. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, tonality is a stealth superpower. I mean, it is so underappreciated. And, uh, you know, a great example, the tonality I was talking about those police detectives back in Kansas City. I remember we had this car stop in a um, tough neighborhood, uh, pretty uh, female driving and big, you know, Neanderthal-looking male as a passenger. Now, you know, big alpha males don't let women drive them on a regular basis. So that, you know, it's a clue. It's not a strong clue, but it's an indicator. It's a pretty good chance this dude's wanted. Otherwise, he's behind a driver's, driver's wheel. Like, look, I don't, you know, I, I, when my girlfriend, Wendy, I drive, uh, where we go, you know, it's a man's job in my view. I'm a, I'm a last century, uh, I'm chivalrous. <laughs> I, you know, I open doors, I pull out chairs. My girlfriend, as when she's around me, she's forgot when it's like to open a door to the truck. I actually leave the truck locked so she can't open the door. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so there's a big alpha male uh, being driven by his pretty female. Probably let, let us pull these two over, see what's going on. Walk up to him, ask her for a day. She gives it up right away. I walk up on a passenger side of the car, look down at this dude, and he goes, I don't have any. I'm like, okay, <laughs> you're wanted. We just got to figure out who you are. You're not driving and you're not giving up your ID. All right, cool. We pull her uh, back to the police car, you know, and me being a young, dumb, uh, inexperienced cop, I would have been like, you know, what's his name? 
you know, and, you know, I, I used an interrogating tone of voice. And instead, uh, the detective with me goes, say, uh, what's his name? And his tone is saying, like, I know him. He's a friend. I just can't think of his name. You know, I like him. It's all wrapped up into this inquiring, friendly tone. What's his name? And she blurts this dude's name out without thinking about it. <laughs> and then, so, you know, he picks up the mic and we, we got a great computer system in Kansas City. He says, run once and once. This is the guy's name. You know, this is how about how big he is. You know, you get pretty good as a cop guessing height and weight. You know, you get practice over and over. You can, you can nail it within a half an inch and 10 pounds. <laughs> and she starts to cry. <laughs> this poor girl. <laughs> And sure enough, the uh, dispatcher comes back. Yeah, the guy's got warrants. And he starts crying because he's going to know that she gave him up. She, she, he's not going to know that uh, that it, we tricked her. And I walk up to, to back up to the car. You know, I go, you know, I go, hey, man, I use his name. I go, come on, it's time to go. And he gets out of the car and he shoots her a look like, you gave me up. <laughs> We threw him in cuffs and took him away. And it was all based on tonality. Mm. And so it is such a stealth superpower. You know, and you have to be satisfied at how astonishingly effective it is, but it's not celebratory. Uh, you know, we're in conversations with a production company now about, you know, a non-scripted negotiation TV show. And I told him, Vance, I said, this ain't going to be Real Housewives. You know, this ain't going to be Bar Rescue. It's not going to be Hell's Kitchen where people are getting yelled at to get results. It's not going to be exciting. It is going to be astonishing. You get astonishing results when you change your tone of voice. But it's not celebratory excitement. People aren't jumping up and down. You know, the fireworks aren't going off. You have to be satisfied to just have astonishing impacts on scenarios. And it's a, it's a stealth weapon. People, people don't really know what just happened. Mm. They just know that suddenly the game has changed incredibly and nobody really knows how it happened. And when you can get into that kind of satisfaction, you don't need people giving you high fives in a moment. You just want to have a great big thick bank account. Uh, you want to put your feet up uh, you know, on a, on a footstool in a really nice house. Because you got astonishing results. That's the people who are hungry for tonality. Mm. And, and, and I think it goes back to the what I said earlier about the ego, because so many people come into conflict situations thinking, like, all right, we're gonna we're gonna do this and we've got knuckles up and let's go. And and it's taking that away from it and, and back to the empathy, I think is is extremely important. Yeah. The next lesson you talk about is enabling emotions. That that is, you know, we we spoke about emotional intelligence. But let's talk about what does labeling emotions look like in a in a high tense moment where you've you've got a little bit of emotions flying back and forth. Yeah, you know, it's 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 very observational. It's based, it's essentially a verbal observation, is really what it boils down to. And we construct it in very specific ways. It seems like, it sounds like, it looks like. You seem, you sound, you look. You can even say it feels like because you're trying to make a verbal observation on a dynamic or an emotion in the moment now what what good does that do? uh, first of all it starts to give you insight it calls from some processing from you as to what's going on in the moment 
typically you start out with something that's really on the surface. And each time you do it, you actually, you get a little smarter. And the other side feels a little more hurt. They call out negative emotions, you know, and it's, it's observing them versus denying them. Most people want to deny negative emotion. You know, I don't want you to be angry when the person's visibly angry. That's extremely counterproductive. Instead, it could say, it seems like I've made you angry. Now, that's just tossing out an observation. That's incredibly impactful in a positive way. And so the real subtle distinction is denying or observing verbally. And there's a bunch of neuroscience that backs it up that, you know, uh, and what we talked about before, people in survival mechanism are, are highly negative. Well, throwing observations on these negative emotions dissipates them. It's it's a diffusing effect. It's very subtle and extremely positive. And it starts to clear people, keep people cleared into seeing a way forward. And it's, again, it's astonishing. And in, unless you really know what's going on, there's a um, great story in Bob Iger's book, The Right of a Lifetime. He's negotiating with Steve Jobs uh, over the um, uh, merger between Apple and Pixar. Jobs calls him in. They want to meet on the Apple campus. Iger's like, okay. You know, he's been trying real hard to have a great relationship with Jobs. The relationship between Apple and uh, Disney at the time has been poisoned by Iger's predecessor. Thinking along with Jobs at all, Jobs load the guy. And Iger gets in charge and he, he reaches out and Jobs says, fine, come see me. You can come, you can come here. And Jobs likes to work on a whiteboard. And he says, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna put all the pros and cons of a merger up on this whiteboard. And and Iger knows that Jobs just loathes Disney at the time. I mean, just intensely negative. And he's like, well, you know, you go first, because he's a little scared about this. And Jobs says, fine. And he begins to label his own negatives. Nobody really knows what's going on. It's a phenomenal story. He starts calling out everything he hates about Disney and all the possible negative interactions of, of a result of, of a merger. And it, it's, it's almost to the point that he's saying, like, Disney sucks. I mean, he is pulling no punches. Disney's culture will destroy Pixar. I mean, very negative, but just in an observing fashion. And he writes all these negatives on the board. It doesn't matter who puts it in the air. Either side can. And Iger's just deflated by it all because he doesn't have a total appreciation of what's just happened. And Jobs goes to hand the pen back to Iger and says, you know, all right, so you got any positives to lay out here? And Iger just kind of says, you know, man, there's a, there's a lot of negatives here. And Jobs looks at him and says, yeah, but sometimes the positives outweigh the negatives. And they make the deal. Now, the lesson there isn't that the positive outweigh, positives outweigh the negatives. The lessons are if you can clear the negative clutter, it unleashes the positives. Mm. You, know, don't, you don't have to reinforce them and ignore the negatives. What you do is you clear the clutter. These are chains. The negative thoughts are chains, restrictions, barriers to the positive thinking. The fastest way is to call them out. And then release the positives to do some phenomenal stuff and understand the negatives could potentially show their, their ugly head again. And how do you get rid of them if they happen to come back? Same, same way you did in the first place. Call them out. Mm. 
it's it is again it's an astonishing result that people suddenly when they engage in it say ah, what just happened you know suddenly we're on firm ground suddenly we're making a deal it's very subtle it's a it's a it's a stealth it goes with tonality and it's a very stealth superpower uh, th- thanks for that that uh <laughs> that trip down memory lane it's such a you you wouldn't you wouldn't hear many people labeling their own negatives in a in a, in a emotional emotionally charged session like that particularly if someone's coming in hot so that's uh, i think that the the the, underst- the underlying theme there is when you're in a position and you're trying to you know have empathy towards the other person labeling if they if they are heated labeling why they're heated and if you're causing them to be heated uh, in a way. So lesson number three is taking it slowly and don't compromise. We you, the whole the whole reason of the book, never split the difference. I spoke earlier about we're on one side, you're on the other side, let's let's meet in the middle and we'll call it a day, let's go off on our merry ways. But then that leaves you with the the bitterness of like, well, I could have asked for more, which is in my personal case, when I was going through the, the breakup with my business partner, I was throwing this bloody thing across the room because I knew I was splitting the difference. <laughs> and I was and I was gonna have that that grind in the back of your mouth be like, I, I, I don't feel satisfied with what's come out. And that was just because of the emotionality of it. But but talk about the taking things slowly and, and the, the not compromising. Yeah, well the, the slower you take it, the more you give both sides a chance to think. And slowing things down in and of itself has a tendency to sort of tampen down the negative emotions. And so it's your, it's your advantage to do that. It's, uh, it's the accelerator that saves, or the delay that saves time. Typically tends to save time in a very counterintuitive way because you're delaying things. You're uh, trying, uh, negative emotions are exhausting. And you're taking, trying to take advantage of that in the moment and, and simultaneously not inflame them. Give, give yourself space to think. Give the other side space to think. Some people really, really need it. Um, a third of us really need it. Uh, a third of us, roughly a third of the globe universally, um, Asian, African, Hispanic, Western European, doesn't matter. A third of us are analytical. And we, uh, we really want to think. We want to really want to think things through. The the best example that I ever heard described of it, Lex Friedman in his podcast. I'm hearing him talk to somebody about, you know, the intimacy of the moment. You know, an analytical person loves the feel of thinking in silence with someone. And I'd never heard anybody describe it as the intimacy of the moment and feeling more bonded with someone. If you could share the silence, mm. you got to get people to love that, that chance. Now the other two types are scared to death of silence. So you, you help them understand in the moment that it's a positive thing. A relationship oriented person uses a silence as uh, giving somebody the silent treatment as an indicator of fury. And unfortunately their uh, response to someone who feels the moment is intimate is misinterpreting it as fury. And that almost becomes a comedy routine (laughs) until everybody appreciates how powerful silence can be and how connecting it can be for some people. And and for those people who want to feel very connected to me by sharing silence, I want to give them that opportunity. Mm. I want them to feel connected to me. I want them to feel like they can share information. Uh, You know, Lex also, I think think he did an interview of Elon Musk where he asked him a question. And must sit there for 22 seconds 
before he answered. Like most people can't handle three seconds. <laughs> three seconds is an eternity to some people to go dead silent, you know, but, you know, Lex realizes that uh, he's got to let Elon think and mm. they're going to be more connected. So silence is, silence is a superpower. Also, there's all these little things that you can do. that are superpowers in negotiations mm. and it tamps down the emotions. So slow it down. Yeah. And, and, and the last one about not compromising. Right. If someone heard that and they've never read the book, it would sound like, you don't take any BS and this is my way or the highway, but you're not, it's not, it's not supposed to be like that in terms of the compromise because you're coming through those other three steps before you're getting to that last one of not compromising. Hopefully right. you don't have to compromise if you've done everything else correctly. Yeah. Well, compromise is lose-lose. You know, when do you compromise your principles? Do you compromise your values? Do you compromise what you believe in? No, you shouldn't because if you do, you're going to end up resenting it. It's, it's lose-lose. Um, compromising also keeps you from finding a better way. Never be so sure of what you want that you wouldn't take something better. Well, the other side's got a better way to, if you guys collaborate, there's always a better way. There's, yeah, we live in a world of imperfect information, period. There's no way that you can know everything. And the other side knows stuff that you don't know. So instead of compromising, find out gently through all the stuff we're talking about, what they know that you don't know. And a better outcome will present itself, which is then, I don't like the term win-win because it's often used to exploit people. And you can be suckered into a bad deal with someone who's trying to get you in a win-win mindset. But in point of fact, you don't want the other side to lose. Or you don't want it to feel like they lost. What really matters is, do they feel like they lost? And if it's a highly collaborative negotiation where they got a chance to at least contribute their thoughts and to be heard, then I got to feel like they lost. And that's mm -hmm. what really matters. Not did they lose, but did they feel like they lost? Because feeling like the loss triggers resentment. Uh, it uh, triggers people backing out of deals. It triggers people you know, tanking a deal over a small issue that means nothing in terms of finances, but everything in terms of emotion. I mean, that happens all the time. Real estate deals, you can get a $3 million real estate deal that gets tanked over $1,500. That makes no sense. Right. And it happens all, all the, the time. time. All the time, yeah. So uh, that's because people felt like they lost and they were just waiting for the moment to tank the deal. So, yeah, I mean, make people feel like they've collaborated. Don't don't meet in the middle because it's going to sound harsh, but people who meet in the middle are lazy. Mm -hmm. Take a little extra time to find a better outcome, and you're going to have fewer renegotiations. You're going to have fewer pe people backing out over tiny things, wasting your time. Uh, a lot of time is saved with this empathic approach, which is why people who use it actually end up making more deals in the same amount of time than the people that are impatient compromise. Love it. I love it. Well, guys, uh, if you don't ever get your hands on, if you don't have it, get your hands on the book, Never Split the Difference, The Negotiating if, as If Your Life Depend On It by Chris Voss. Chris, as we come to the end of the show, I want to ask, what's, what's, what's the plan now moving forward, the next sort of 12 months to five years. What, what I see you've got uh, the, the, the full fee agent over here uh, on the screen. What's, what's, what's next in the, in the black Swan empire? 
Yeah, well, we, we got a lot of cool stuff going on. We've, we've got a brand new thing we're doing through Fireside. It's a, social, a new social media interactive podcast. It's really cool. It's a subscription service. It is not anywhere near as expensive as our in-person negotiation training. And a lot of people who've taken a book and a masterclass uh, are now signing up for this subscription service because they're trying to put themselves in a position where they can afford the in-person training, which is expensive. And we're really excited about doing that. So the, the Fireside thing, it's it's an app that's available both on, um, if you got an iPhone or if you got an Android, it's in the App Store of either one. It's really cool. Um, you know, two days from when we're recording this, um, I'm interviewing Mark Cuban on it and people are wow. going to get a chance to ask him questions. And we find that it's really filling a gap because you, you, you want to um, get your base built with the book and the master class, and then the jump to the in-person training and the coaching is sometimes is too far for some people. So, how how do you how do you continue to improve? The fireside interactive uh, platform is really kind of phenomenal. We're very much into it. If you if you go to if you go to our website blackswanltd.com, sign up for a newsletter which is complimentary. You you get an actionable article article on negotiation, plus you get information about Fireside or any of the other stuff that we're doing. But the Fireside thing is really cool. Really excited about that. That's awesome. And, and Fireside is the name of the podcast? It's the name of the platform. Name of the platform. Gotcha. And then we have our own, we have a Black Swan network gotcha. on the platform. Awesome. Awesome stuff, mate. Well, look, I could talk to you for hours. I know I want to respect your time, my friend. I'm just so incredibly humble that you've come on the show and be able to share some incredible knowledge with us. Um, I just want to reflect some of the things that I took away from today's show. I think, you know, your, your self-aware, I've written the thing here, self-awareness, self-awareness. If you're self-aware and you start from that starting gate, you're going to be able to be open to having emotional intelligence to then come into a conversation or a negotiation using your three steps. I think there's got to be a, Someone doesn't just pick up this book if they think they know freaking how to do it all and it's their way or the highway and they're, 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 they know the best bloody negotiator in the world, you know that they're not probably as self-aware as what they need to be to say, hey, I need some new tactics in my life to, to, to better move the business forward or move my relationship forward with my wife or my husband or my kids or whatever it might be. So I think self-awareness is, is, is probably the, 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 the root of it all that then blossoms out, in my opinion from what I took away today, that, that really helps you define how you can become a better negotiator. So um, uh, thank you, my friend, for jumping on the show today. Just remind people where they can go to, to get all the information uh, on, on your website. Yeah, blackswanltd.com. B-L-A, sorry about the dings. B-L-A-C-K-S-W-A-N-L-T-D.com. Uh, the Edge, uh, the tab up to the right. You can subscribe to The Edge. You can find past issues. The edge is a gateway to everything, and you'll learn about fireside, whatever you need. We'll bring you along. We'll meet you where you are. We awesome. want you to, I want you to be more successful. Awesome stuff, mate. Well, look, again, thank you for so, so much for jumping on today's show, and we'll catch up very, very soon. My pleasure.
Well, there you have another cracking episode jam-packed with some incredible advice from Chris Voss. Remember, do go get your hands on his on his book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as If Your Life Depended on It. Head over to www.blackswanltd.com, The Edge is the newsletter. Sign up for it. Get all the information that they're going to be putting out there on the new Fireside uh, subscription channel. Really, really thank you, you all for taking some time out of your day to tune in to continue to grow your financial IQ. You might be asking to about today's interviews, like how does it relate to real estate? It all relates to real estate. So grab your hands on the book. We're going to do this all again next week. So remember, be bold, be brave, and go give life a crack.